when they are not happy with reality, because reality doesn't conform to propaganda, to the faith, then they try to change reality for reality to be changed into what the lies are. They don't like people protesting when they don't like things. And certainly, they don't like people voting. These people will not disappear because Trump disappeared. They are still out there. And actually, they might learn from Trump's own mistakes. Welcome to episode 49 of the Refuse Fascism Podcast, a podcast brought to you by volunteers with Refuse Fascism. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers and host of the show. If you want to deepen your understanding of the fascist movement, where it came from, how to stop it, if you want to be challenged by perspectives perhaps different from your own, who are sounding the alarm and the continuing danger of American fascism and be part of a community ready to act, then you're listening to the right podcast. In this podcast, humanity and the planet come first, not only American lives. The relentless attack on what is true, on objective reality, on science, is a key and dangerous component of fascism and paves the way to its consolidation. You can see throughout history and no matter where you spin the globe. Denial of the truth forges a base of people who unquestioningly believe and follow their leader. Truth is eroded and everything becomes submerged in a fog of opinion where what you believe is determined by who is saying it and what you already want to believe. Social media magnifies this. Once the notion of objective truth is erased from society, even outlawed, then people cannot be free to change the world. Because to change the world, you have to understand the world as it actually is. Meanwhile, identity politics and its standpoint epistemology, the notion that truth is determined by who is saying it, by their direct lived experience as a member of a social group, and that truth differs from person to person. This parallels and thus greases the wheels for Trumpian epistemology. So let's continue to struggle for the truth, to struggle to be scientific, and to defend science. Today, we're sharing an interview with Dr. Federico Finkelstein. We had a wide-ranging conversation talking about global fascism and how central lies are to the fascist project. Well, I am so glad to welcome Professor Finkelstein to the Refuse Fascism podcast. Dr. Finkelstein is a professor of history at the New School for Social Research and Eugene Lang College in New York City. He is the director of the Janie Program in Latin American Studies at the New School for Social Research. Dr. Finkelstein is the author of seven books on fascism, populism, dirty wars, the Holocaust, and Jewish history in Latin America and Europe. His books have been translated into Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, Turkish, and perhaps by now, more languages that I missed. Dr. Finkelstein's latest book is A Brief History of Fascist Lies. And I encourage all my listeners to check that book out. He's also the author of a recent book, From Fascism to Populism in History. His previous books in English include The Ideological Origins of the Dirty War and Transatlantic Fascism. So welcome, Dr. Finkelstein. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. 
In an interview recently, you mentioned how you quoted in your most recent book, A Brief History of Lies, how you quoted Trump, Hitler, and Mussolini at the beginning of your most recent book. And you said that in certain ways, perhaps Trump is the most explicit among the three of them. It's Trump who says, don't believe in what you are seeing. And how can you not believe in what you are seeing? And I'm wondering, how do Trump's lies work? And why do you think the U.S. has been such fertile ground enabling him to be even more explicit than a Mussolini or Hitler? I mean, these are great questions. These are really important questions. I can answer them in different ways. Certainly, Trump, uh, regarding that particular dimension of uh, the fascist way of lying, he's extremely explicit. But basically, they all agree. I mean, Hitler, Trump, Mussolini, they all agree that whatever they don't like shouldn't be the truth, even if reality says otherwise. And, and not only that, but what makes uh, this fascist way of lying so dangerous, as the cases of Mussolini and Hitler demonstrated, and, and I think as the case of Trump demonstrated as well, is that this kind of understanding of the truth, I mean, and, and let's be clear, for, for the fascists or people like Trump, and, and we can talk about this later, that are very much related to fascism, whatever, whatever probably most of us regard as the truth, that is to say, things that are, uh, can be or should be empirically demonstrated, for them, these things are lies. Whatever they regard as things that should be, as opposed to what they are, they will regard them as truth. So basically, it's a radical understanding of lying, because in fact, they don't think they are lying. They believe they are telling us the truth. And the truth is whatever they want it to be. So either they are believing this, uh, or even when they realize that what they say might be untruth, they believe even that is at the service of a, let's say, wider, larger truth, which is not related to the empirical world, because that is the truth of faith. I mean, this is not something that they believe it should be demonstrated, but rather something that you have to believe in without proof. And that is faith. That is typical of religion. And what we see in these ideologies is basically a displacement of what is properly religious into what is not, which is properly political. So that's why these are a political religion. What is not a lie, but it's a matter of faith in the world of religion becomes a lie in the world of politics. So whatever Trump says is a matter of faith for the followers. And thereby, basically, such a, a, an irrational statement such as don't believe in what you see kind of makes sense for Trump's followers. I think that's a really helpful way to look at it. I guess I wonder, it is faith, and yet they're seeing it as absolute truth and bludgeoning other people with that. Something as important as a lie that they won the election. It's not a question of perspective, and yet they're able to go and declare as true something that is against all evidence. Why is lying so central to fascism? Well, this weird, strange, or peculiar way of lying, which is not even believing that they are lying. And even it begs a kind of more philosophical question, which is, do we think that the people that tells a lie without realizing that it's a lie is a liar? And, and my answer is yes, but it's a fascist kind of liar. It's a believer in things that do not exist. But then it is even more dangerous than that, because it's not that they decide to live in their magical uh, la-la land, not uh, just rejecting reality. But what is dangerous about these ideologies is that and this happened in a horrific way with the Nazis, is that when they are not happy with reality, because reality doesn't conform to propaganda, to the faith, to, you know, basically to the lies, then they try to change reality 
for reality to be changed into what the lies are. I mean, let me be more concrete. One of the biggest Nazi lies is that uh, it's, a, it's a horrible lie, a racist lie, that said that Jews were uh, dirty and they spread disease. This is a, a, obviously a lie. And, and yet the Nazis put uh, the Jews in uh, concentration camps and, and, and before that in ghettos, in which sanitary conditions were horrible. People became very unhealthy, dirty, and eventually spread disease. So you see how horrible this is, because the idea is not only to lie and deny reality, but rather also to change reality in order for reality to conform into the lie. So they mm-hmm. not only replace lies, replace the reality with lies uh, rhetorically, but actually practically. And this is extremely dangerous. We see the same or, or similar patterns in people like Trump or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. And with my colleague uh, and friend, Jason Stanley, we wrote an article recently even saying what we see with this denial of science, what we see with these uh, promises of miracle cures, uh, basically what we see is potentially genocidal policies, uh, which are basically based on lies. So here you see again, denying reality, denying the disease, and the result of that is creating more death and, you know, and even amplifying or promoting the disease. And this is extremely dangerous. I mean, it's not only just that they remain, you know, in the Arlala land without changing the world. They want to change the world in order for the world to look like the lie. I really appreciated your looking at Bolsonaro and Trump in the U.S. around the COVID crisis and using the lens of genocide to talk about what's happening in the Americas and the, the danger that's posed and what happens when science is thrown away and disregarded to such an extent. You talked about the difficulty our society has in discussing lies in many of your works. And Trump says COVID doesn't really affect anyone. The scientists say that's not true. And these are framed as kind of two sides of a debate. We could say the same with Bolsonaro in Brazil. We've seen how fact-checking has become a whole cottage industry and yet doesn't seem to matter. It's very clear that our major institutions, the press, academia, the bourgeois opposition, aren't doing anything to surmount that challenge. What do you think people need to be done or what do you see should be done to address this false two-sided debate? Well, I think what we saw in the last election, this is, of course, a starting point, but some things were done in the sense that, in my view, what really historically looked like an anti-fascist coalition was created. People on the center, people on the right, and certainly people on the left uh, supported a candidate that presented himself and even adopted scientific positions and basically presented himself as as a kind of voice of reason vis-a-vis this disaster Trump uh, was creating. I think one of the first answers to this is People need to vote and, and, you know, and express themselves with their votes and as well as with, of course, with now in the, in the horrible situation that we are with this pandemic, with distance and wearing masks, people also need to demonstrate in the streets. I mean, these are basic tenets of democracy. Democracy is not only, you know, that people represent us, but rather that, you know, that our voices are heard and in many ways and voting and being on the street when, when protesting when needed, I mean, are important re- uh, uh, pillars of that. I also think that, that the role of the press is central here. And I think sometimes there has been a lot of learning regarding the danger of fascism, what the danger of fascism really is. I think there are no two sides to this equation in the sense that there is not scientific truth and just the faith as being two interpretations of reality. One is based on empirical data and the other one is mythical beliefs, political theology and propaganda. People should not present this as a kind of two-sidedism. And again and again, we often see that by default, many reports are presented as that. Trump said 
that there is a miracle cure, scientists on the other hand said the opposite. And that is a really problematic way to present in this. In that sense, Trumpism is not normal. And then I think at the same time, we need to defend this important role of the independent press because without fact-checking, without data, informed opinions by citizens cannot be made. And the role of the press is precisely providing the public information to then make interpretations of reality. But how we can interpret reality if we don't have reality itself being informed and represented? And I think these are important pillars. And when fascism won, it was because these issues were not as important or were not as defended as they should be. In addition to that, of course, the rule of law should be defended and preserved, the separation of powers. And also, I think, another issue which is beyond Trump, which is a, a question that all people that believe in democracy should be asking themselves, which is how egalitarian our democracies are. Because when they are not, precisely they promote the opposite. They promote the authoritarianism that we saw with Trump. One of the best antidotes against this is in addition to voting, protesting, and so on and so forth, is to make democracy more, more real uh, in terms of egalitarianism and, and pluralism and, you know, and fighting racism and all the horrible things that this Trump is stand for. Amongst fascism scholars, you have a particularly strong grasp on where the fascist movement is at globally, including the role America has historically played in installing and propping up fascist regimes. And I'm wondering, how do you see Trump's removal? How has it affected the rise of fascism around the world? What impact has his removal made? I mean, I think this is a key question. And perhaps before that, as a kind of frame of reference, let me tell you a little bit more of how I see fascism historically. Because basically, fascism was many things, but at least it was four things. I mean, I'm now generalizing, but most historians of fascism will agree that fascism stood for four key things, that without that, you don't have basically fascism in power. And those things were the glorification of violence and the militarization of politics, number one. Number two, racism and xenophobia. I mean, without racism and xenophobia, probably we are talking about something else. I mean, all fascisms were racist and xenophobic. What changed were the groups that were target. Like a German social democrats, you know, very many, many years ago, they would refer to this kind of politics as the socialism of the imbeciles. I mean, replacing, you know, egalitarian concerns with an explanation that says, you know what, all your problems are because of this minority or another one or that other one. So basically, element number one, again, violence. Number two, racism and xenophobia. Number three, what we talked about before, this kind of extreme way of lying, this kind of total denial of reality, almost total denial of reality, and even worse, this attempt to change reality in order to conform to the lie. So this propaganda, best exemplified by someone like Goebbels, was rather more extended and typical of fascism. And number four, dictatorship. You don't have fascism without dictatorship. I mean, it doesn't mean that all dictatorships are fascist, but basically all fascisms, when they are in power, are dictatorships. Basically, the way I address this historically is that after 1945, there were fascists and dictators that realized that because of the emerging bipolar world, the kind of option, like what they call the third option or the third way between capitalism and communism or, or socialism and liberalism, was not viable. And these people basically did the opposite of what the fascists did. As you know, in the cases of Hitler and Mussolini, they used elections and other democratic procedures to basically reach power and eventually destroy democracy from within in order to create a dictatorship. Well, 
these people did the opposite. And I'm now talking about someone like Juan Domingo Perón in Argentina after 45, the same with Getulio Vargas in Brazil, and many other people that in, in Latin America, but also in the US that try this one. Someone like you, you might say, like George Wallace or, or other people. But in Latin America, they reach power. And what they did is left these four elements, violence, racism, dictatorship, and lies behind. They started lying like all other politicians. I mean, there is no politics without lying. Hanar and talk about this, even you can go back to ancient times where, you know, politics and lying were together, but not in the extreme way that we have been talking about. So these early people that I call modern populists in power, after 1945, uh, reformulated fascism in a democratic key. And that's why many scholars, myself included, we talk about that as populism. So basically, populism, which should not be confused with a more general view, a more general understanding of populism, certainly in America, not in the rest of the world, but certainly in America, because in America, sometimes populism is conflated with a politician who caters to popular demands. And basically, that's a politician who caters to popular demands, not a populist. A populist is someone that is an authoritarian leader that believes that he, generally he or she, personifies the will of the people and divides the world between elites and this kind of combo of people and leaders. So basically, this populist rejected these four elements of fascism, and that's how modern populism was born. Trump, when he came to power, was still part of that tradition. So I see Trump as a kind of history, as a kind of a process. He's part of a process in which eventually he has been morphing from, let's say, populism into perhaps more properly a fascist state. But this started before, because in a way, It started before he even came to power. Because what you see in people like Trump and Bolsonaro, and you might say the same of Narendra Modi in India or people like Orban in Brazil, in Hungary, is that, that basically they started doing populist politics, meaning authoritarian politics in a democratic key, by going back to these four elements that most populists in the history of populism have rejected, which are this kind of, as I said, four elements, racism, violence, total lies, and dictatorship. So basically, people like Trump and Bolsonaro, they went back to three of them. They went back to violence and demilitarization of politics. They went back to this kind of fascist way of lying. And certainly, they were putting racism and xenophobia at the center of their politics. So they were already reconnecting populism to fascism in ways that we have not seen before. And then you have January 6th. In January 6th, you see Trump doing a coup d'etat in which he's attempting to reach element number four, meaning to reach a fascist stage. Before that, I was not the only scholar of fascism warning of this danger, a fascist danger that we could see in Trump, because once you see these three elements, it was perhaps expected that he might look for, to complete the circle, so to speak, and reach element number four, which is dictatorship. So this is a kind of connection that I see between fascism and populism and Trump and his closeness to fascism, because he failed. Probably we should talk about Trump as a kind of wannabe fascist or a failed fascist. I'm wondering, now that his coup has failed and he's out, how does that impact the Bolsonaro's, the Modi's? Do you see any impact with his departure or no? Well, certainly this is not something good for them because, I mean, they, all, all these leaders were not created by Trumps, even to the extent that, that they are many Trumps in their own way. These are not outcomes of Trump. I mean, and we should not certainly understand Trumpism as the originator of all things. In fact, as opposed to what Trump says, he's not that original. I mean, he was, the originality was that he reached power in the most powerful country in the world, making him even more dangerous than these other guys, these other autocrats. But in fact, Bolsonaro and Modi and, and Orban and Salvini in Italy existed before him. 
and they will continue to exist. But he, in the same way that he was enabled by by conservatives, he also enabled these wannabe fascists and autocrats. So he, as you know, uh, he was a big friend of dictators. He kind of felt more at home with these kind of leaders. And the fact that he actually made it with a campaign that was explicitly racist and violence and, and that he even attempted coup d'etat, it was good for all these people. Now that he failed, probably it sends some warning signs. But the point is that these people will not disappear because Trump disappeared. They are still out there. And actually, they might learn from Trump's own mistakes. But I think that, and perhaps even Trump's own lack of courage, because as you might recall, he promised he would join the coup d'etat in Congress, but he did not. And this was not exactly what other fascists did at some points. This kind of sac- sacrifice uh, for the followers and the program. This is something that perhaps a more, and that's why I agree with some people when they say, yeah, I mean, if Trump had been a little bit smarter, you know, perhaps democracy would have been destroyed. Because what we should remember is that how and why he made it so far, even reaching the possibility of a coup d'etat in the United States. I mean, the situation in which you have these domestic terrorists inside the chambers of, of our Congress. But going back to the, the global dimension of your question, I think it certainly it is not something good for them. And it shows for the opposition that these wannabe fascists can be defeated. I have been in Brazil many times. I talk a lot with my Brazilian colleagues. And, and I was talking with them about the fact that I think that this, this anti-fascist coalition should be a model for Brazil. And although it's very, very hard, I mean, you know, the Brazilian context is, is very complex and there are a lot of <laughs> understandable misgivings. But at the same time, Bolsonaro represents something that is beyond the famous title of Seb Sternhead, the major historian of fascism, said that fascism is neither right nor left, but rather an extreme form of the right, which incorporates into its propaganda some elements of the leftist vocabulary. Of course, nothing left about fascism. Between the right in Brazil and the left in Brazil, even as, as contested and as conflictual as that relationship is, they have more in common, perhaps democracy in common, than with Bolsonaro, who is a wannabe fascist like Trump. And, and the same you could say about, you know, some, somebody like Mitt Romney or Project Lincoln in the U.S., that when fascism was defeated, people from the right were also incorporated, and rather than becoming uh, enablers of fascism, they became critical of fascism. You wrote recently in a piece, I think, called Trump Leaves the Seeds of, but the seeds of Trumpism remain. You wrote that in pursuit of the wishes of its leader, Trumpism has created a new and mobilizing myth. Thinking of his future triumphant return, Trump presents himself not as the loser that he really is, but as a victim of treason to the fatherland that he clearly is not. And I'm wondering, in the U.S. right now, how do you see the threat of American fascism? What should people who care about democracy, about humanity, what should people be thinking right now? I think the threat is real. I mean, it's hard not to call these people domestic terrorists, people that want to overthrow the elected government of the U.S. and, and attack institutions. So these, these domestic terrorists, these extremists and fanatics, you could see, see them in, with their military toys and dress as if they were soldiers all over the place. The history of fascism, these are called paramilitary formations, which is like people playing 
as if they are playing to be soldiers. And, and Nazis were having these pseudo-military uniforms. In fact, they were not soldiers in, when they were in their capacity as Nazi politicians. Uh, and I think uh, at this point, what should be part of this situation is a clear message from the position of the law. I think two days ago, and even today in the New York Times, there was an article where we learned that uh, in Germany, the main party of opposition, which is an extremist party, a very Trumpist party, if you want to apply the kind of American metaphor. I mean, that party, which is the main party of opposition, a party much connected to fascists, is under uh, surveillance by the state. And I think the Department of Justice needs to prosecute all these people that committed all these crimes. That would send a clear message of these things are not allowed in a democracy. I think we're at a kind of crossroads where, I mean, it's very important, the responses to, to these fascist attempts that we hear from, from the new government. I mean, this needs to be addressed. I mean, this is not a, an important matter, and I think it's a, it's a clear and present danger. I think the the focus on there being some justice, there being some accountability is something that has come up in almost every interview that I've had since January 6th has been someone that I've been speaking to talking about the need for there to be some public repudiation that says this is not allowed to happen again. So I think that's very interesting to me. One of the things that Refuse Fascism as a movement has been about since its formation was it originated to drive out the Trump-Pence regime. That was the one single unifying demand was to oust Trump and Pence. And the method that Refuse Fascism, when it started for the four years that it existed under the Trump-Pence regime, was to oust Trump through sustained mass nonviolent protest. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what might have been different in how things developed and the situation that we confront now, if at different points during the four years that Trump was in power, this massive mobilization had happened, had people taken into the streets to drive this regime out. Well, you know, as an historian, you know, we are almost trained not to do this. I mean, not to do counter history or to guess what may have happened. But as a citizen, I, I mean, I can answer this more as a citizen rather than as an expert. I would say that mobilization is very important. And this is exactly what authoritarians hate. I mean, they don't like that. They don't like people informed. They don't like people protesting when they don't like things. And certainly they don't like people voting, as you know. I mean, like what we see is very worrying that these Trumpists now are trying to downplay the centrality of the vote in America. I mean, for the future, the question of what may have happened is the more mobilization will have put some stops to Trumpism, as well as, of course, probably we may, I mean, again, this is very difficult to know, but we also may have seen more repression as we saw in Portland and other places. But it's again, like for me, uh, it's very difficult to know, I mean, to say. What I can tell you is that when people protested in the past, when these enablers were, uh, well, actually chose not to enable and join the democratic opposition, then fascism was not a successful. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your caveat as well. I think that we're in a situation that that has changed. Thank goodness Trump is out of power, no longer has the nuclear codes. And and yet the danger still remains. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. For listeners, I really encourage you to take a look at Dr. Finkelstein's work because there are many scholars of fascism that put the lens solely on Europe 
And as people who care about all of humanity, it's really important that we learn from Latin America and look at fascism in the global context. So I really appreciate the time that we've had with Dr. Finkelstein. I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had anything else that you wanted to say or resources that you wanted to suggest that people take a look at. No, I, I just wanted to return to a key point in our conversation, which is that there is a lot to be done and there is a lot we can do in order to stop fascist attempts from being successful. And, and I think a, a key dimension of this is remembering exactly what happened rather than giving this myth, giving this propaganda that is emanating from, from Trumpism and, and a bit about alternative realities that never happened. So basically, it's very important to, to really remember what happened and, and identify that, that as a part of history, as opposed to this propaganda and this myth that these people are promoting. You can find Dr. Finkelstein on Twitter at FinkelsteinF. Thanks for listening to the Refuse Fascism podcast. I want to thank all our new subscribers and those who are writing such thoughtful reviews. If you don't already, click subscribe so you get the latest episodes as soon as they hit. I want to hear from you, your thoughts on this episode, on the show, questions you think we should explore, ideas you have on guests. Email me, Samantha Goldman at refusefascism.org or on Twitter at Sam B. Goldman. Here are a couple of recent reviews we received. Alan X wrote, there is nothing like this podcast. Each episode helps me appreciate the truth nobody wants to confront. That even with Trump out of office, fascism continues to pose an existential threat to humanity. And each time I listen to an episode, I feel I'm part of a community of people engaging with a serious, reality-based understanding of the nature and danger of fascism. MH wrote, The Refuse Fascism podcast brings together a community from different disciplines and areas of expertise who see the danger and what needs to be done. I'm so glad this conversation is continuing and deepening and refuses to be daunted by delusional calls to move on. Write your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help us reach more people. If you agree with the comments I read or checking this out for the first time and thanking your friend who shared this show with you, chip in to help us launch ads this week. Go to refusefascism.org and click the donate button. While you're there, check out the treasure trove of resources. You can also support this show by giving via Venmo, refuse-fascism, or on Cash App, refuse-fascism. Tomorrow is International Women's Day. Wednesday, March 10th, is Abortion Provider Appreciation Day. Celebrate both by listening to and sharing episode 44, an interview with Sean Norris, author of forthcoming book, Birth Violence, How the Far Right Has Declared War on Women's Reproductive Rights. Thanks as always to Richie Marini and Lena Thorne for helping to produce the show. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Stay safe, not silent.